Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crashing After Show here on AfterBuzz TV. Today we're reviewing Season 1, Episode 3, Yard Sale. And we have a very, very special guest who may or may not be named Silly Silly Fun Boy, Sweet Petey Pants Holmes. So in honor of our guest, get into it. You're tuning into the destination for TV superfan discussion, AfterBuzz TV. And now, let the buzz begin. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard me correctly. We have the amazing stand-up. Pete Holmes here in studio, creator, showrunner, yes. executive producer of our favorite, flat, Pete. Our favorite new show on HBO. Pete, we're so, so grateful to have you today. Thanks Thank for so having me, yeah, Jeff. Absolutely, no here. worries. Um, oh, so here's the stool I asked for. <laughs> oh, hi. Hi, Jenna. <laughs> this is Jenna, my publicist. Hello, Jenna. She'll lunge at you if you breach our verbal contract. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Where can the people find you online if they want to find you? I think it's just at Pete Holmes. Right? At Pete Holmes on Twitter and uh, Pete Holmes Comedy on Facebook. Perfect. I think it's all at PeteHolmes.com. I think if you Google Pete Holmes, you'll find him. He's yeah, you'll kind find him. He's kind of a big deal. So, no. like <laughs> there is a drummer named Pete Holmes who I think hates me. <laughs> as, of, as of two years ago, we hate Yes, of course. Um, well, guys, my name is Jeffrey Graham. You guys can find me on Twitter at Jeffrey C. Graham. We're so happy you're here, and I'd love for my panel of amazing superfans to let them know where they can find you as well. What's up, guys? I'm Mike Rippey, and you can find me on social media at Mike Rips. I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore. Hi, my name's Mina. You can find me on Mina Makes Magic on Instagram and Twitter. Well, guys, the Crashing After Show here with the Pete Holmes. Pete, we love this show. Oh, Just thank so you, you know, we're having so much fun with it. Yeah, I'm only regretting that I didn't plug my Instagram right now. Do you want to plug, <laughs> plug it? Right Go now? ahead. Plug it. Plug it. Plug it. Plug it. <laughs> it's Pete underscore Rodriguez. <laughs> It's Pete Pete twenty one. Ah, with an I. With we an had I. to. We had to. It's Pete Holmes on Instagram. I like Instagram better. I don't know why. Although I think it's ruining my life in a different way. Like I got off Facebook and Twitter as much. Yeah. Because I was like, oh, this is too much stimulation, too much news, too much everything. Yes. And now, if I if I look out my window, like driving here to lovely Burbank, I look out the window, and if I don't see like a dog smoking a cigarette on a surfboard, <laughs> I'm bored. You know what I mean? Like I see so many amazing things on my phone. Yeah. It's raised the bar, but. It is Pete Holmes on Instagram. I use that a lot more than the others. Do you, as a Twitter user, do you ever feel the pressure as a known comedy writer stand-up to re- like to use Twitter? Because I feel like it's become such a medium for comics. Yeah. I, env- I, I, I admire the people that stay off of it that are mm-hmm. just like, that's just like Nick Offerman is just like, nope, yeah. not doing that. Tina Fey. I, I like those people. I really do. And I, I aspire to maybe be one. I do <laughs> like being able to shout something out every once in a while. Yeah. The pressure that I feel is I love dumb jokes. I love... Greenlighting other people's dumb jokes. I love living the kind of life where you're not worried about making stupid jokes. My whole life, I've liked making dad jokes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Corny shit. Can you swear? Oh yes. Okay. You can fuck yeah. You can <laughs> <laughs> Corny shit. Um, so I remember when I got my talk show, I became very nervous. Like after the news came out that I had a talk show, my next tweet was something really, really stupid. <laughs> and I was so worried everyone was going to be like, this from the guy with the new show? <laughs> and I've, I've, clearly, if you check my feed, you can see I, I've gotten over that. <laughs> well, that's the thing we love about your comedy is it really transcends a wide spectrum of, you know, like kind of funny dad corny jokes, but then even kind of dark dramatic stuff, which I feel like this episode really got into. Um, I want to talk about that for sure as we discuss Yard Sale, but before we do that, what were your guys guys overall reactions to this episode i'm what curious if you hated it <laughs> this episode sucks episode two we hate it <laughs> yeah that's why you invited me for three one and two swings and misses third one base hit yeah i was i was a fan of tonight's episode yeah it was good i really liked it what do you think mia 
Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, there were like a couple jokes I really liked. There was I don't know his name. He was one of the the stand up comedians that was like, um, basically saying, "Don't worry, I'm a comedian. I know it looks like I should be selling meth at a gay rodeo." Yeah, who was? I know that was. Oh a cameo. yeah, that was Dustin Chafin. He's, he'll be so thrilled. Nice. Um, he was the real manager at the Boston Comedy Club, which was the comedy club that we built. Wow. It's gone. We rebuilt it for this show, and Dustin was the manager. Who gave me my like first club in Manhattan? Wow! So anytime we could, one of the things that Crashing is kind of about trying to shine a light on is the fact that comedians like helping mm-hmm. one another. There, there can be backstabbery and and some c- competition for sure. But I think if you're finding that, you just need to shift circles. You need to find the mm. people that are more your speed. So it, the show is about comedians helping each other, and then on the show itself, we liked anytime we could giving a, a part or a cameo, as you said to uh, real people, and that was a thrill. Well, let's talk about that. One thing I loved was that um, you and TJ really start to actually develop your friendship in this episode. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I loved about this relationship specifically was, on paper, you guys probably wouldn't necessarily be friends. He's a nihilist who doesn't believe in the concept of time. and, (laughs) um, And you look at someone like Jess, and on paper, you guys would probably be perfect for each other in the show. That's right. But comedy is the thing that makes or breaks both of those relationships. Yeah. Can you talk about kind of that, like writing that, writing TJ as a character and just the idea of comedy as something that either bonds or separates people in this world. Yeah, that's well done. It, it really is uh, almost like a species or something. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that's very compulsive. Yeah. It actually hurts when you don't do comedy. I know that mm-hmm. sounds depraved, but it's really a wonderful thing, I think, to really need your work yeah. <laughs> and to get a lot of satisfaction out of it. And in, in my real life, my, my actual wife didn't understand that. And that was uh, kind of like dating a werewolf or something. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I, I really wish you'd stop killing the neighbor's chickens. And you're like, but it's who I am. <laughs> you knew I was a werewolf when you married me. And then there is someone like TJ who there are so many differences between he and I, but we share this uh, common core value. Right. The fun thing about TJ was he was one of the people that in real life, when I actually got divorced, he was somebody that let me stay with him. He was shooting a movie called uh, She's Out of My League. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, he, we weren't that close. It was very much like the show. We knew each other. Mm-hmm. We had hung out maybe five, six, seven times, and they were all great, but it was scattered over many years. And then I got divorced, and like a species, like a family might be a better way to put it, mm. he was like, hey, I know you're going through a hard time. Flew me out to Pittsburgh where they were shooting. I stayed in his hotel. We were at a room service. I smoked pot for like the second time in my <laughs> life. We went to the Andy Warhol Museum, and like he... Just like in the show, he not only made me laugh, but he offered a lot of philosophy mm. on like why you should like move on and why you know you're better for it and you're going to be okay. It, it, that that week of my life really helped inspire the show. Cool. How much of that philosophy that he was saying in the show mm-hmm. was you, and how much of it was him? You know, that's one of the great pleasures of working on a show like this: is you hand a friend a script filled with jokes that they don't remember making. And I tell them that they were their jokes. And that's, that's my dream. I would love to walk in. Imagine if I came to this today and you guys were like, here's 50 jokes. And I didn't remember them. And they were mine. Wow. So, of course, I love them. Yeah. And I agree with them. That's what I got to do with uh, TJ and, and, and uh, to a lesser extent, um, Sarah Silverman, a couple things that she had said to me over the years. Um, but with TJ, it was almost entirely his thing. I would call him from the road and he'd be like, I'd be lonely and sad, so it was, it's not uh, completely accurate, you know. Right. But I call him from the road, and he'd be like, "You're like a traveling preacher, except you're hmm. not lying." That's something he said. Okay. 
But then I don't know if he remembered saying it, and I put it in the script. He's like, "That's a really great line." I'm like, that, was, <laughs> that was you. You yeah, would think that was a good line. Was. I thought you said that. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the idea of like philosophy is such a um, tangible theme throughout the whole show. Um, even spirituality, I think, really more than just the idea of philosophy. Each character seems to have a worldview that kind of really dictates the way they see everything. And I love the way that we saw all three of those worldviews kind of really displayed in this episode specifically. I feel like we saw Leaf um, kind of pushing you to pursue your talent and pursue your art. And I feel like we saw Jess pushing you to pursue what you really love. And I feel like we saw TJ really asking you to view comedy as art, something like a high, like, philosophical art. Um, I want to talk about Leaf, because I think we saw so much development from him on this. What did you guys think of Leaf specifically in this episode? I'm interested in your thoughts on the panel. Well, now now he's becoming, uh, you know, super supportive of of your character, and really on your side, almost like pushing you to do more and more, and really enjoying your your work, so it's like an interesting dilemma now. Yeah. You can't really hate him the same way. (laughs) In fact, I found myself loving him. Yeah. Like, I want to get into this, but it feels like this show is a masterclass on likable characters. Oh, wow. Was that a goal for you and Judd going in? Or? I, do, I can't say it was a goal as much. I do know that it's something that I remember someone at HBO pointing out mm-hmm. as something they were grateful for. It was like, uh, we didn't in, architecturally build the show to be likable, but as someone who tr- tries to be likable and, is, and enjoys other likable people, I think that just comes through in the work. Similarly, yeah. the philosophy and the religious stuff we never really tried to put that in there. That's just kind of how I, I view the world. And I don't know if you've heard me say this on the podcast yet, but it's the idea that Leaf, who's the guy who has sex with my wife, for those listening, watching, uh, represents me now mm-hmm. in, in some ways, not in all ways. We've certainly exaggerated him for comedic effect. So we got to create this really fun and lovable, likable character to do this sort of deplorable thing. Right. You know, socially deplorable. Or, you know, it seems pretty objectively deplorable to right. violate a contract in that way. But he's kind of like, hey, man, this is life. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. You just have to roll with it. Everything's your teacher. So I get to roll, write these lines for him to say to past me, <laughs> talking to present me, or, or, or a version of present me. It's, it's pretty far out, actually. Yeah, it's so, I mean, like, every character, because then even Jess, like, and this might owe partly to Lauren Lapkus's performance, I think it's great, sure. um, but, like, the turn to make her really raising money for your journey as a comic, I thought was really yeah, was a nice. smart turn. Yeah. And I thought the last ten minutes of this episode had, like, four turns that I just really wasn't expecting. I was very surprised by a lot of the moves that were made. Yeah. Um, how do you, you and Judd wrote this episode together. Yeah. How do you guys write? I, you know, it's it's interesting to point out one of the things that I find interesting about show business in general is Judd co-wrote every episode with me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's credited, at the end of the day, you, as, as an executive producer, you look at all the scripts and you go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this one was me and Oren, and I'm going to say this one was me and Judah. Uh, and really all of them could have been me and, and Judd. That's not to say we did everything. Right. Oren and Judah and Eric Sloven and Beth Stelling and Jamie Lee and Brent Sullivan, all these great, I'm forgetting a couple, but wonderful writers all worked on everything. But there was something, when you say there are all these turns and stuff, I just want to interrupt and be like, that's Judd. That's Judd. That's Judd. That's Judd. That's really what Judd does. And that's one of the reasons why so many of his projects have 
that similar flavor. Even like I was watching the girls recently. I don't know if you watch girls. Oh yeah. It was the bottle episode where it's just her and the writer in the apartment. Such a mind blowing episode. Yeah. Mind blowing yes. episode. And if you watch the after the episode, which I'm assuming you did. She covers it. I cover that one. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. fun. Oh I the HBO one. Yes. Really? Okay, yeah. so you know they're talking about how it was Judd's idea that he has a daughter, and that's yeah. how the episode ends, that the writer's daughter comes in and here he is having this loving, appropriate relationship. That's what Judd is good, I mean, he's good for a million things, but he's perfect at that, is I would pitch something, I can't think of a specific time that I pitched something that was really obvious, mm-hmm. but uh, in an episode coming up, I remember there's an example, but he's always good at going like, or we do the opposite thing. Like yeah. or the or the yard sale is for you, and that was a secret that she was keeping from you. And you're like, oh wow, that's really interesting. Um, but it, but, oh, sorry, one more thing. Jeff. Yeah, please. To your point, it was incredibly important for me to to have the show be sympathetic for everyone, and almost as a therapeutic exercise, I would recommend it to anybody that mm. feels like they've been scorned. It's a good strategy for your own emotional healing to try and write it from four different perspectives. Hmm. What was it like for the guy? that fucked your wife? What was it like for your wife who fucked another guy? Yeah. You, it's so easy, and I feel like a lot of people have arrested development and put the, the blast shield down and go like, well, I was wronged, and that's the end of that. And that's where we get like grown-ups that are emotional, emotionally like children. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is go, even though I wasn't a drunk, I wasn't abusive, I didn't do anything quote-unquote wrong, I wasn't like some cliche Disney character that deserved to be left, neither was my wife in the show or in real life, a one-dimensional character that was just like, sorry, I'm a pirate. I want to fuck you. <laughs> and they're like, she, she was missing something. Right. And that's why, you know, sometimes people ask me if my ex-wife has seen it. I haven't talked to my ex-wife in o- over a decade. But if she did see it, it would be my hope that she would really appreciate or even enjoy the fact that there's all these hints in the show to weirdos, fans of my podcast, yeah. and, and potentially to even people who know me as a person that are saying, I get it. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes, even though you're not doing anything, like I said, drunk, hitting somebody, abusive, n- not there, emotionally absent, sometimes just the fact that you're not the right person. Like, you're not giving me what I want. Like, I like to say that Pete was having an affair first. He was, he was having an affair with comedy. Yeah. Right. But nobody tells you that. Nobody tells you that it takes a certain kind of person to want to be with somebody who's like also very passionate about uh, comedy. One of the things that we cut from this episode, sorry I'm ranting, one no, of the please. things that we cut was a riff with Lauren and I, and I was you know, kind of feeding her lines and then she'd just do genius things with them. I was like, uh, if she, she said, if you're holding me over a cliff in one hand and comedy in the other wow. hand, which one, like the good son, <coughs> which one would you pull up? And I, I was just like, trying to we're improvising so I'm thinking about it and then she just went ah. <laughs> <laughs> and ultimately it was it was uh, too funny which is a, another yeah. funny Judd thing that I can't praise enough because I like I love funny shows and uh, uh, but I tend to watch shows like Girls mm-hmm. and stuff and Mad Men that are funny but are also very rich and very real and so I'll give you another example from this episode uh, we should have just done a fucking director's commentary on this one. <laughs> I have a lot of tidbits. We can pull it and yeah. put it right on. Just run this under, yeah, under the episode. She says, uh, if I said we could still be together, if you stopped doing comedy, would you do it? Mm-hmm. And in the show, Pete just thinks about it and says no, and he feels terrible. Yeah, such a good scene. That's the moment where he realizes, like, fuck, I, I fucked up. Like, right. I'm so sorry. 
And but then we did like we did with everything in the show. We did five other takes where she was like, y- "You can still do comedy. You can't do comedy, but we'll be together." And Pete's like, "My character is like, uh, does improv count? <laughs> or like, can I give a funny toast to the wedding? <laughs> can I do magician stuff? Like, can I do magic?" And like, it was re- really cracking us up. But then Judd would rightfully pull it in and say, like, this is not that moment. Okay, I'm so glad you brought that up, because the next thing I wanted to talk about was the balance of comedy and drama in this show. I mean, it, it feels perfect to, as a follow-up to Girls, which, congratulations, by the way. I mean, I think So Lena, cool, right? Yeah, Lena's show is so good, and, like, I do think her show probably is an antecedent for shows, just a lot of shows now, that really deftly balance comedy and drama. Yeah. Well, that's what Judd, Judd said that to me. He's like, if you look at television today, Lena really did birth like a new style. Mm-hmm. Like, even if you don't like girls, you have to respect Admire it, it as something that was like, now everybody's doing it. Well, and they're all shows that I like. I, I want to be careful, too, and make sure that I say that yours is totally original as well. I appreciate it. I hope that. I'm not making it sound like it all. No, when I came up with the thought of the show, I was like, uh, I was just talking to James, who works here, about this as well. I was like what is the type of show that I really love? And I thought of Girls. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I brought it to Judd. But it, was, it went like this. Idea reminded me of Girls, brought it to Judd. But Girls was kind of in the inception as well. Because it's very confusing to my parents because they don't watch Girls. Right. And they, my dad always calls it a sitcom. He's like, Rita, how's a sitcom? And I'm like, Dad, you're going to shit your pants. Like, you don't know. They, I don't even think my dad likes it because it makes him too sad. It reminds him of... <laughs> His, his real son life. getting divorced. Yeah. yeah, but my mom strangely is like really into it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. What was your? What did you bring up now? Oh, oh just balance. Yeah, and and yours. I mean, yeah. It sounds like this is the show you wanted to make, which is so great. Um, I think this is kind of a two part question, but how do you strike the balance when writing? Um, and the other question along with that is. I, I can't think of a lot of shows that star traditional stand-ups who love pure comedy in this tone. Like, I feel yeah. like, to me, this is the first autobiographical stand Well, there's Louis. There's Louis. But... Yeah, there's certainly Louis, and Louis is an inspiration for sure. Um, but we knew by virtue that I'm not Louis that it wouldn't be Louis. You know right. what I mean? And this is like, totally your own thing. You put a different meat in the sausage. It's just going to take him. A... Why did I do that? <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> you just can't fake Louis. Right. Like, we're just doing me, and we're not trying to be avant-garde in any way. But he certainly was an inspiring force to be like, wow, this guy's doing something totally very different. But even in stand-up specials, I love... I watch most stand-up specials, and I'm like, they're cutting too much. They're, keep, they're pacing it up too much. And, it, you know, if you watch Faces and Sounds Loved special, it. I'm like... We deliberately let it breathe at the beginning. We have the intro. We have the, like, this is my special. I really hope it goes well. You put in the air before the first joke. Because what, what is this, like, vinification of everything? <laughs> vinification. I don't it, like that it, word. It, it ruins <laughs> everything. Yeah. I understand that it might make it more appealing to a 14-year-old girl with ADD. But, like, <laughs> I'm trying to create what a, a stand-up theater show is right. like and what my stand-up is like. And similarly... I, you, life doesn't feel like a bunch of people with perfect lines all the time. Right. Just like, it's like a curb lesson, actually. Yeah. Your enthusiasm. It's like, why aren't we acknowledging how funny we're being right now? <laughs> Especially if we're comedians, we'd be writing it down and be like, this is incredible. Right. Um, sorry, again, what was the question? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's all so good. I think um, just 
yeah, I think you answered it. Just how do you when you go into a script? Do you focus, oh yeah? Do you focus on story first? Do you yeah. Focus, yeah, I'd love to hear about your process. I guess it's definitely something that I think Jed would say he learned from Gary Shandling mm. and Larry Sanders, which was one of Jed's first uh, jobs. And, and he said it to me time and time again. So much so that I now say it to the writers on our show: is it's like we get the emotion first, and it's not to be cocky, but we're like. The comedy, I've been a comedian for 15 years. It's not that I'm constantly hilarious, as I I said earlier. I can be hammy and stupid, and I'm wrong. Still funny to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I can be, I can miss just as often. It's like baseball. Mm -hmm. You know, you hit every third pitch, and you're in the Hall of Fame. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that's as good as you can do. Uh, So it's not to say that we're bulletproof, but we do go at these things with a certain confidence that comedy is riffable Mm -hmm. and if you know the world and you know the game and you know the characters and you know the stakes of the scene if all of that is real then you can have moments like does improv count that wasn't in the (laughs) script like the script was really just kind of like this is what uh this is the scene where jess reveals to pete that she was raising the money for him and that pete realizes that he loves comedy more than he ever loved her or the idea of being married. So that was all in there, and then we, we just riffed our, our butts off. I'm wow. trying to think of some of the jokes. Any joke, so many jokes that I see in trailers and teasers and stuff uh, were improvised. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of people like the Tom Hanks joke in the, in the second episode where funny, yeah. she says Tom Hanks would be going down on me by now. Gina riffed that, and I riffed Tom Hanks. Like, that, that whole idea wasn't in there. Uh, and there's there's millions of jokes coming up later because we were kind of like as long as we get it because who are we trying to impress? Right. The show's been picked up, yeah. you know. I mean, we're gonna make it, like we like it, and we're gonna film it with some really funny people. And that's not to say that we didn't have tons of options in notes somewhere, but the script would always just be kind of like the pavement upon which you'd skateboard. So would you guys write dialogue or really just write synopses? Of... So much, yeah, tons, tons and tons and tons of dialogue. Okay, but then it would often get thrown. Yeah. Away, and here's what I I want to make sure I'm not perpetuating the idea that they're young, aspiring actors or actors out there watching this and be like, see, the script <laughs> doesn't matter. We're working with like comedians. We're working with like trained improvisers right. and stuff. And it's not Mamet, and it's not Sorkin. It's it's a different thing. Mm-hmm. There were times we always shot the script. Mm-hmm. We'd do the script first, then we'd do it again a little bit looser, and we'd just kind of tweak the dials on how much you're improvising and how serious, like we do one dead serious take, which is like what we used in episode three, the like really hard take. And then we have so much footage of jokes and stuff that we didn't use. I feel like I'm hogging the conversation. Do you guys have any questions? I have have one question. Um, It's the scene where... Who are you? (laughs) (laughs) It's the scene where you're you're getting over, uh, you know, the, the sadness of parting with everything and, and the whole divorce situation uh, and you're watching Love Actually and cry, Crying. Yeah. Uh, is that a movie you've actually seen in real life or how do you cope how did you cope with the yeah. divorce? What are things that you did to get over it? And- I did absolutely. In real life it was it was too dark. The I used to watch sad things to try and get me to cry mm-hmm. and I don't say that with any pride I act, as you know from the podcast I'm trying to open up my heart and be more emotional to be honest because I'm from Boston and it's cold and I'm Irish and Lithuanian <laughs> and it's just a terrible cocktail for being in touch with your feelings so when I really got divorced in real life I would watch I remember I would watch uh, the Sopranos episode mm. where Melfi gets raped oh my god. god it was like the saddest <laughs> so dark so I know too dark for the show yeah 
but it would make me cry because I felt yeah. so sad for her. Obviously, it's a it's a devastating episode, <laughs> and then I would be like, oh, good, I'm getting some divorce tears out with this <laughs> as well. But then when we actually had to do that for the show, by the way, it wasn't the rape that made me cry. That would make me cry. It was at the end when she had the restraint to not go after the guy that would really devastate me. Spoiler, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Really brilliant. Which one is The Sopranos? Was that a TV show? I don't know. It was on HBO as well. I can only reference HBO shows. It's fair. It's in your contract. Um, Anyway, Big Little Lies, uh, (laughs) which I am enjoying. Yeah, that's good. Um, what was I saying? Uh, you were saying it's about... About love, the love actually. Oh, yeah. So funny, here's, here's some good Los Angeles, if this interests people. So we had seven or eight cuts of what that scene was. What is Pete watching and what made him cry? The first one was The Wonder Years, and it was our, our favorite by far. And then they're like, well, Fox owns Wonder Years, and they won't do that. Or I don't even know who owns Wonder Years, but someone else owns it, and they won't give it to us, and there's all these things. And I'd fall in love with clip after clip after clip. We did one that was Family Matters that was a real thing that used to make me cry. And, and uh, The show, Family yeah. Matters, really? There was a scene where Steve <laughs> Urkel is, is making his last play at Laura, and he's like, it's like reaching for a star. <laughs> and we wanted it to be funny like that. But that was something that when I saw it when I was like 14, it made me cry. So I was trying to find something real. And then I was watching Love Actually around Christmas with Val. And we were like, oh, this is, this is good because it's about a breakup. And, mm-hmm. and that's something that you cry. In, the, in reality, I was looking at nothing, though. Like, I had to sit there in front of a light box that was mimicking a television, and and there's a crew, and there's a sound guy, and it's, like, the most sterile environment, and I had to, like, fake a eye orgasm, basically. (laughs) I was just like... (laughs) So I just, in between takes, would watch the first three minutes of the movie Up. No, that's oh, so man. brutal. That's Over. the only part of Up that I've seen yeah. is the first Over three minutes. It's so beautiful, that's though. So it's sad. so oh, beautiful, yeah. but man, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you see how that's better than the Sopranos thing. <laughs> like if we if we thought for a second we could have used that, we would have used that. But that's yeah. I feel like you can't get those rights. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, even for HBO though, that's interesting. I feel like it, it's like a bunch of pretty girls at a dance. Like they, they all know they don't have to do anything for anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think sometimes networks or studios, or I don't even know how it works, do favors for each other. But, you know, you get into that like, well, Marvel owns X, yeah, which Sony company owns Spider-Man and all this stuff. Which so, is why we'll never see Logan fight the Hulk. <laughs> so we're talking about episode three, but I want to go back to episode two because I have a couple questions about the end. A... You get the check written in the wrong spelling of your last name. Yeah. What happens there? Do you end up cashing that check or what's the... Because that doesn't... That's a great question. I feel like I'm at Comic-Con. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the logic of this. That is something in a writer's room where we're like, ah, people won't be tracking the money too tightly. He was. In my, wor- in my mind, Pete does get it cashed. Okay, so in your mind. Has that happened to you in real life? No. But we had a, my friend Matt McCarthy and I used to have a joke about him calling me Pat Helms. Like people never knowing who I am. And I like, almost introduced you as Pat Helms today. Yeah. I was like, in case the fans don't get it. So no, just, yeah. it's become a runner. And that was like a little nod to, to Natty for sure. Nice. And just the idea, we keep trying to reinforce, again, it, it's a bit of a metaphor. It's like that hasn't happened to me. But the feeling of getting to a club, then there was a deleted scene in that or something that didn't make the show where they didn't even know that Artie was bringing an opener. That's so real. Mm. That's so real to get to a club and then being like, 
the show's really tight. We don't have any time for you. And, and you just feel so unwelcome. So a, the wrong name on the check is just another. Yep. Getting mugged is just another. Getting towed is just another. Comedy, New York, neither of them want or need you. So as many times wow. as we can remind anyone aspiring to follow their dream that you're going to get kicked over and over again and not to despair but to go, that means I'm doing it correct, mm-hmm. then we'll do that as many times as we can. One, has has one, that happened to you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. One more about last episode two. You start to open up when you go into her, her apartment and you break out some impressions. Yeah. Arnold and so on. Do you have yeah. a favorite impression? Um, I'm trying to think. Did I do Ray Romano? Ray Romano is a go-to. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, living queens. <laughs> we did a video called Romano Sings where he sings songs. And that, that proved very funny. Where he, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. And then we did that for the Pete Holmes show with him, with Ray Romano, called Romano Duets. Yeah. And I'm doing it. He's not there yet. And then he walked in and... I'm singing as him, dressed like him, my hair is dyed like him, and I just hear in the shadows, he goes, oh, God, do I sound like that? Uh, and I actually have on good authority, him, that he's really tired of me doing that impression. <laughs> I will send him this link right when the interview. I'll just cut that part and send it right to him. I'll be good. Tweeted him. Yeah, that might be my favorite. Yeah, because it's the easiest. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I was just going to ask if that ever happened to you in real life, getting mugged and towed same day. No, not as, see, that's the, kind of the point. It, you, I didn't have a yard sale either, and that's not to say your question's invalid. I, I've been mm-hmm. asked that a lot. Shitty question, Mina. Uh, <laughs> no, your question's incredibly valid. But the truth of starting in comedy and getting a divorce, it, it, it almost happens underwater. It's in slow mm. motion. Like, there's not a lot of events. And that's one of the things that Jed is very good at. I would write 15 page purge documents everything that I remember that literally happened in my real life and he and you'd say something like you know your whole life is on display like mm-hmm. everybody's kind of rooting through your privacy and he's like oh like a yard sale and then he's mm-hmm. like so you should have a yard sale mm-hmm. and that's and that's an episode of TV almost if I had had my way I'm kind of new at this it would be a lot of blinds drawn and, and watching a movie and eating ice cream we've got a little of that in there mm-hmm. but you have to have these events that feel like what it's like you know you know i'm a big metaphor person it's like it's not that your car gets towed it's that like the city like the ocean is trying to spit you out Mm -hmm. every you just tried to park and you couldn't park right that's why you know those things are so much more emotionally devastating than they should be like your car is towed Mm -hmm. okay you'll get it back but you're like i can't even exist yeah (laughs) and getting mugged we had some writers more type a logical kind of like Vulcan writers that are like, people don't get mugged in New York anymore. And I'm like, I agree. It's very rare. But it remains a good storytelling device mm-hmm. because it's like, how are we going to show in the pilot that Pete, even though he needs the most help, is actually the one that ends up helping the other people? Like, he's, he, he doesn't save Artie's life, but he rescues Artie from this mugging. So we're trying to show character. And I think that's why we see these tropes throughout different shows. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're kind of veering into the territory of character of Pete versus person of Pete, which is so interesting to me. P.O.P.? P.O.P., exactly. (laughs) So we have Pete versus P.O.P. Yeah. Uh, What's so interesting to me is, like, you've kind of made your fame on being transparent and being vulnerable, and that's why people have kind of flocked to your throne. Mm. (laughs) I like the way he asks questions. (laughs) You guys are like, what was it like in the city? (laughs) Um, The question is, though, like, how... 
how do you navigate that? Of like, I'm making an autobiographical show, and yet so many of my fans know everything about me. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why you know you do use these exaggerations of how it felt, and it makes it more eventful. Mm -hmm. So I think even the people that know everything about what actually happened in my life, they'll be surprised by what happened on the show. Because frankly, I was surprised. That, that's why you collaborate. I really like you know, movies where some auteur works with another director. Mm. Some like brilliant writer works with a, a brilliant director and they come together because they kind of cancel each other Eternal out. Sunshine, Charlie yeah, Coffey. I, I, I didn't want to say that, but that is what I was thinking. Yeah. And that's not, I actually really like uh, Schenectady or uh, New York. I can never say it correctly. You said it right. I did. Cynic Doge. Cynic Doge, New York. I really like it, but I know what studios are worried about it, right. is that sometimes left to our own devices, we can really masturbate ourselves into a corner. Yeah. But you know what else I think is interesting about who, who we are is such an ethereal thing. Mm. I like representing who I was because you see how absurd it is, how much you've changed. And you look back and you're like, look at what I used to think I was. It, it helps us see that none of us have as firm of a grasp on who we are as we think we do. That we're all kind of in some sort of transition. So even if they know who I am now, we can look back and be like, can you imagine that that's how I used to be? Hmm. And that's one of the things that I do on the, on the podcast, too. People that start at the beginning and then meet me now, I'm like, you have no idea what you're in for. There's going to be so many changes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question uh, about just the world of comedy in general. Could you couch I, it in a compliment? In a compliment. <laughs> You're a very... Sit on your throne. Build him up before you tear him down. You're a very, very funny person, Thank Pete. you very kindly. <laughs> All right, so it seems like everyone in the comedy world knows each other. That's just coming from a spectator standpoint. I don't really know what it's like. Yeah. And it seems like you guys have this circle. What was it like getting into that circle? And is it kind of similar to how you got into the circle on the show? Like meeting Artie, Artie helping you out, then meeting TJ, TJ yeah. helping you out. Was that is that based off truth or is that more of a storyline? No, it, it really is based on truth. And that and that really is what the, the metaphor for getting towed and all that stuff is. If we go even further in, it's the people. Mm -hmm. It's like you really want to get to a point where people know who you are and, and, and that's why not being a dick is such an important part yeah. of succeeding in comedy and that's why it's always confusing to me when people come in like hothead rookie cops <laughs> like they're, they're dicks to, there's like this <laughs> it's almost more like the mafia not to go back to the Sopranos but there's a respect system and there's a, a paying your dues system okay. and people really resent when people pull bolts over that like they get very we actually address that a little bit later in the, seri in the season um, so yes, that that is the name of the game. When Pete in the pilot is standing at the bar and three comedians are sitting there and they sit around him, that is the feeling. Is there's so many nights where you just have to go and stand there like a guy at a party with no date, and you're just like, Ooh, <laughs> and hope that no one mocks you, and then they do mock you, and then you have to say thank you and come back again. And these are the secret stories of what it feels like to start in comedy that I feel like are underreported. Right. I know in a, in a world of politics like they are now, I shouldn't say underreported. Like, these are the stories we need to tell. <laughs> but from a dramatic standpoint, it, it makes me happy when comedians... Uh, somebody, uh, Sean O'Connor, a very funny comedian, said, this is our saving private Ryan. Because oh it was goodness. telling the story of what it's really like. Kind of being in the trenches with yeah. your brothers and coming through some suffering. Again, I can't compare... Uh, that to a war, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's all about being accepted, which is one of the reasons why I think it's universal. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not trying to be a comedian, 
you're trying to t take your feelings and express them and have them be accepted by your peers and by strangers alike. That's that's a life well lived. Well, we've talked about there's like Easter eggs in every episode, yeah. like tidbits of comedy that I feel like we come away with because none of us do stand up. We all love stand up, um, but like it's fun for us to get like the back door. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned in this episode was treat four like five. Can you? Can you? Is that a thing? Like, I was really interested by that, or is that just something yeah, you wrote? That's Zach Cherry improvising. Although I think, I think we fed that to him. He riffed so many of his lines. I'm happy to take one away from him. I think maybe one of the writers were like, I think it, it wasn't Judge. I didn't direct that episode, but somebody was like, do four, but treat it like five, and which is funny. It's one of those esoteric things that almost sounds like a koan, like a like a Zen thing you'd meditate on. Like, <laughs> do five, do it like four. It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. But that is something that you would tell a new comedian. Hmm. Oftentimes, open micers will know that they have five minutes and they, they rehearse in the shower or in front of a mirror and they time it out to five minutes. And you still see people do late night sets like this because yeah. it's not a natural thing to know that you have four minutes. Yeah. It's not natural. So if you're doing a late night set... It's, it's definitely better to plan it light and know that you can breathe and relax and smile. Like, mm -hmm. all these things that are, like, super important to connecting with the audience. Because if you just try and cram it, that is... A, so the short answer is yes, that's an answer. Mm. That's, a re, that's a real piece of advice. And I really like that, you know, every time I would meet, like, a Bill Burr or a Jim Gaffigan or whoever and then have all this knowledge, I'm so happy that there's shows like this and that there's podcasts and stuff that you can get all of their expertise just out for everybody. Right. You just have to be mildly interested and you can pick up some really interesting things. Definitely. Do you guys have, I've got, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, we're not even halfway through the season, right? But is there someone that won't appear, that's not in season one that you really want to be in season two? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I'm sure there's a, a, probably a few, but is there someone like specifically like this person needs to be on this show yeah. in season two? I have this. We have this idea for um, Pete feeling old. It's talking about because um, I'm supposed to be 32 on the show. I'm 38 mm -hmm. in real life, but in the show, we're technically at that time of my life. I was 28, and we were like, I don't think I look 28. Let's say I'm 32. Mm -hmm. It's like a vague age, but that's still old to be starting. And I get a lot of people asking me, like, <coughs> Do you feel what? I feel old. Am I too late to start? And you always tell them yeah. the same thing. You're like don't worry about it. Like Tim Allen was in jail when he was your age. That's <laughs> which sounds like a joke, but it's like helpful advice. So I want to do an episode where Pete feels old. And then at the end he meets an older, wiser comedian. Who's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, like reframing what making it means. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about like getting some sort of show or deal or payday. And everybody that's had a show, a deal or a payday knows it's about being fulfilled. Like we're looking for novelty and we're looking for fulfillment and we're looking to be heard and, and to hear others. So I would love for some, that's a long way to say, I'd love that to be like Steve Martin or Dan Aykroyd. Mm -hmm. Like these people that you just don't see that are great. Martin that Short. Just, Martin Short. Oh. Exactly. Where you're just like, look, we know. Like you've already slaughtered the comedy cow and you're eating ribs in your house all day and that's great. And you're, and you're writing and you're doing the things that mean something to you now. But will you lend us an afternoon just for this show? And, and that's one of the great things about Judd is a lot of people say yes to yeah. Judd that would say who to me. <laughs> <laughs> On your podcast, you have a moment that you mention when you talk about the first time you kind of felt like you had a foothold on the entertainment ladder was when you saw an ISBN number on your comedy special. 
I think like he's got the CD. And oh he saw yeah, barcode. yeah, 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 yeah. Barcode, yes. Do you kind of feel that way with this show? Like you created a show with Judd Apatow. Like he's For pretty sure. much regarded as like j- the Jesus of comedy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> except he never died. Except he didn't. <laughs> I mean, not yet. Not yet. I mean, who knows? He's, he's still, still in his ministry. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There are people don't like him. There might be some Pharisees who go after him. We'll see. You know what's interesting? Is uh, and Gentile Pharisees for once. <laughs> uh, there, there's an idea that you can't really, you can't keep it out entirely. You have to have moments. Uh, marijuana is helpful for this to really get into a place where you're like, I'm doing a show yeah. on HBO, which <laughs> yeah. and really owning that. And I think there's something good and right about celebrating that privately. But there's a lot of, and I see this with Judd too, like why is Judd doing this show? It's because what is success? Like once you reach a certain level, like he has, I'm not saying for me, but like he has, he could live in St. Bart's for the rest mm-hmm. of his life and he'd be fine. So why is he doing this? Because it's like, it's all in the game. It, again, it goes back to the mafia. It's like once you're out, they pull me back in sort yeah. of thing. It's a lifestyle and it's, a, and it's an endless pursuit. So I, you know, I don't want to say I'm always, my happiness is always just out of reach. I consider myself a happy and fulfilled person. And it's not just because of the show. The show, I'm not going to say it doesn't contribute to it. It does, of course, hugely. But I try to stay out of the trap of, like, if it didn't come back for the second season, which is the anxiety I'm living with currently. Right. Not that HBO is, like, stringing it out or anything, but I'm just kind of like, every meal, I'm kind of like, ha, ha, waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah. Even during this interview, I'm like, unfortunately, I've done that enough times in my life where I can relax and go just like, just be happy right here and now and relax and just ride it, enjoy it. Even if it goes for an incredible six seasons like Girls, everything ends. So just like, try to just enjoy this. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a long way to say, absolutely, it, it, I've stopped trying to get my parents to understand my success and just trying to own like a certain personal fulfillment. My, my parents called Judd Jeff Applesauce. <laughs> they, they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. My dad asked when I did Faces and Sounds, the stand-up special, he was like, is that like a commercial for the sitcom? And I was like, no. It's its own thing. It's very... It's something I spent years yeah, working on. Exactly. I've done for 10 years. Yes. <laughs> it's prestigious. Yeah. He'd be more impressed if I showed him like a roll-top desk that I had built because he could understand that. Right. So at a certain point, you just have to go like, look, this is a thrill. Doing the show is is the reward. Uh, but I sure love it, and I, and I really hope to keep doing it. We do, too. Thank you. Yeah, do you guys have any? Yeah, so you are a stand-up comic. You're a writer. Would you consider yourself a director as well? No, no, n- not yet. I mean, would that be into in your future? Do you look at you know something like doing a movie on a big screen or writing for something? You know, there's there's the Aziz Ansari model. I remember Aziz does a lot of Master of None. He directs a mm-hmm. lot of those, and they were in the same building as us, and uh, so we had some overlap. And I was like, oh, I see you're directing a bunch of them, and he's like. Yeah, man, we're here anyway. And I was like, <laughs> interesting. My approach right now is uh, when I was doing the show as an EP and a writer and a star, and as somebody that's like very aware of how other people are feeling, mm-hmm. like really kind of taking the temperature of everybody and just that kind of person, I was really exhausted. So the only breaks that I would get as as the actor, creator, whatever, 
were when the director was ha- having some conversation with the DP and being like, maybe this lens. Yeah. And I was like, thank God mm-hmm. that I'm not the director. Right that. Now. I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I better screeners, I guess. You get like better screeners <laughs> in award season and better insurance. I don't know. That being said, if I if I thought I could bring something to a specific episode, like a real vision for it, not just like, hey, they'll let me. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think, hey, they'll let me is a good reason to do almost anything. Hmm. But if we get to a place, I would love for Oren Brimmer, who did all the sketch videos, did everything with me on the Pete Holmes show, has been a huge part of this as well. He's an an amazing director. And if we could work it out that he got to direct one, because that would be a a, a risk for like a untested in in the network sense Mm. director and then maybe I'd do one and he'd kind of like help me and I'd help him he wouldn't need my help I'd need his help (laughs) I'm open to it but it would would depend on the script and the story you know what I mean well Chris Kelly directed this episode and I think Other People was one of the best movies we saw last year I know I'd also say Burbig's movie too last year I know you love that movie as well but and they're both involved with this project yeah what was that like working I guess I know you're friends with Mike but working with both Chris and Mike in this episode and on the show in general Burbig's Burbig's you know him personally I wish Burbig's (laughs) Uh, Burbig's is great man he he was you know a consulting producer which is just a fancy way of saying I could call him whenever I needed to (laughs) (laughs) and that was often especially in the early stages uh, when Judd was you know doing Girls The Big Sick um, Love he was doing a lot of things all at once so I, I called Mike almost like Judd Jr like he was somebody that has that sensibility that could answer questions I could trust his opinion so he was really a huge part we tried to get him to direct but he was he was too busy I hope he can do the next season I hope he'll be on the next season mm-hmm. kind of going back to your question mm-hmm. I think that would be a lot of fun um but, and then Chris Kelly, who I had never met, I, you know, I, I saw other people and I loved it. And he, this is right when he became the head writer of SNL. So we kind of got him at a hot time because he did that movie with, I, uh, I'm sorry, Maude Apatow. Mm-hmm. So that's how Judd saw him. Um, the funniest thing about Chris, I think, was that he had to, not, not had to, but he worked with TJ. <laughs> and TJ is like a little localized tornado <laughs> of, of comedy. Like, you're never, he's one of my best friends. I've known him for a decade. But, you know, if you were here, it's like there's a small tornado, like the, like the Tasmanian <laughs> Devil. And it's, it's very exciting and it's titillating. But for a director, I think it can be a little bit weird to be like, how am I going to tell this tornado what to do? Like, it, he's so brilliant and larger than life. Um, he's also, you know, great with a director. So it's more something that I think might be in the director's mind. Chris killed it. That, wow. that was me, again, being worried about, does yeah. Chris understand? I'll give you an example. <laughs> T, one of TJ's bits with me, uh, my whole, our whole lives together, it's just calling me Chris for no reason. He's just like, what's up, Chris, Chris? <laughs> he loves calling me Chris, and I call him Chris. All our texts are like, hey, Chris. He's like, yo, Chris. <laughs> he just went through a phase in his life where he called everyone Chris, and I thought it was really funny, so it stuck with me. So another thing TJ would do, because he is a nihilist, and he really honestly doesn't give a shit, like full Big Lebowski nihilist, uh, but, you know, peaceable and kind and very generous, uh, but really thinks life is absurd and all rules are dumb. Yeah. Uh, TJ would love to ruin takes just to, like, make me laugh or make other people laugh. And I don't mean, like, Jimmy Fallon SNL style, like, make me giggle. I mean, like, literally... <laughs> In the middle of a take, it'd be like, I love what you do up there. It's like mostly faces and sounds. I'm like, TJ, you can't say the name of, of my special. And then the other thing you would do is a lot of takes, you just go, Chris! Like, 
There's the scene at the end in the in the open mic where TJ shows up, even though he's supposed to be taking a break, and he, he just go like, oh, "I'll see you in a minute." And as he's walking, he'd go, "Chris!" and do bird arms. And we were like begging him, "Please, just do one take where you don't yell, Chris." For no reason. <laughs> this is the end of the episode. And he wouldn't do it. Finally, he did one. Then come to find out Chris Kelly, whose name is Chris, didn't know what the bit was. Why would he? And thought that TJ was just yelling Chris to fuck with Chris Kelly. So that's what I mean when Chris like had to like... Someone like Sarah Silverman, for example, just kind of glides in and, and kisses and hugs everybody and is really easy. TJ will also kiss and hug everybody. He's right. the sweetest man ever. But he'll also do a bit that might confuse somebody. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think we do kind of have to start thinking about rapping. Do you guys have anything? I know. Five more minutes, I know. We can keep going, I feel yeah. like. It's been amazing. Oh, uh, well, yeah. speaking, we, we've heard a little bit about Faces and Sounds. I actually watched it on a plane today coming back. Oh, no way. Uh, any plans or, or really want to do another one anytime in the future? I mean, obviously. Yeah, you know, that is something I would love to do. I, I'm so inspired by people like Gerard Carmichael who seem to just oh, have yeah. an HBO special and they do the other one. And you're like, wow, that's badass. Mm-hmm. And currently, I, you know, it's like Seinfeld said. It's like uh, once you do the special, it, it kind of can ruin the live event. So right now I'm in the place where you want to get an hour, or like a really great hour, so people come and see you and go, uh, wow, that should be a special, but I just saw it at Yuck Yucks in Calgary. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a really fun thing. It kind of goes back to the directing thing. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. So you should let the act breathe. An hour of stand-up really is like a living organism, and it'll shed jokes on its own instinctually. It's just like... Every night I'm doing that joke and it just doesn't feel as good as the other one, so it kind of falls away. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are trying to do the Louis model of like a new hour a year. It's like, don't do any model. Let the thing be what it wants to be. Louis is such a genius that he has to impose a deadline to like put a fire under him and create more amazing stuff. But that, if you've been doing comedy for five years, it's just let it, let it breathe, let it, let it find itself. So I'm happy to think that you know I'll have this hour and I'll be able to tour again and kind of stay in touch with what it's like to be a comedian. Because I have to say, once you, when, when I did a talk show and when we're doing Crashing, there is that temptation to be like, oh, at night I'll just eat cookies and, and go to bed <laughs> at 9.30, because that's who I am. But you gotta, you got to stay out there and keep crafting it. Um, along those lines, what else can we expect? We'd love to give you this opportunity to promote whatever else. Obviously, for those who don't listen to the podcast, I think it's one of the best podcasts around. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you got it. What else can we be looking for yeah, in the, the future? Yeah, the podcast is called You Made It Weird. Uh, that'll be... <laughs> I love that you got a laugh. Um, yeah, that's on iTunes and whatnot. And um, I don't know. Hopefully, there'll be some stand-up dates and stuff. But, I mean, the truth is, like I said, hopefully we'll be hearing about a second season soon. It's nice to put that out there. Uh, and HBO is pretty, uh, really great about letting people know quickly, so hopefully we'll find mm-hmm. out. And then we'll just ramp into production. I mean, we'll just have 12 weeks to write the whole season. So hopefully that's what I'll be doing. Great. If I'm not doing that, um, I'll be at a local Wendy's crying. <laughs> Watching Love Actually. Yeah, right. Watching Love Actually. Oh, yeah. Because we can have the rights, we'll probably go with uh, Wonder Years or maybe Family. Nice. Well, we sincerely cannot thank you enough for being here today, Pete. I hope this was an enjoyable. It hour was. For you. It was great. I really appreciate. it. I like your microphones. Oh yeah, oh, they're <laughs> excellent. Uh, how about you guys? Where can we find you on Twitter before we make our way out? Well, I'm gonna go with Instagram. Follow me on Instagram <laughs> at Mike Rips. It's Pete's favorite. Follow me there. <laughs> I'm Josh Rodriguez. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Josh underscore Rodriguez underscore. 
And you can follow me on Mina Makes Magic on Instagram. You guys can follow me, Jeffrey Graham, on Twitter at Jeffrey C. Graham. Um, we're covering the whole season, so we'll be here every Monday at 4 p.m. talking about how much we love the show. Oh, thanks. We can't wait for the rest of the season. We are also really crossing our fingers for a season two, so whatever we can do to prod HBO, you know, yeah. just like tweeting at them. <laughs> I'll give you some emails. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll be here every week, and of course, Pete, if you'd like to come back, it would be our honor to have you back. Oh, thank so. you. I'll definitely come back. Thank yeah. you very okay. much. Too. Great. Please. Thanks, Pete. And um, Thanks, that's Pete. the show today, guys, so thank you so much for tuning in to Season 1, Episode 3, Coverage of Crashing. We'll see you next week at 4 p.m. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.